This is an ABC podcast. Beverly, it's our final show of the year before we go to summer highlights. And I gotta say, it's always a privilege to co-host this with you, my fellow pop culture nerd from an Asian diaspora background. Welcome, moment. Oh, okay. Wait, what was that? I, Beverly, I don't want to mansplain how the show works as the cisgender male co-host, but um, when it comes to welcome, like, moment. Oh, okay, what's what's happening here? Because if this keeps going, you know the ABC will probably replace you with a white middle-aged man. Trigger warning! Okay, okay. I'm triggered now. Stop everything. And just like that... It's time to stop everything. By way of explanation, no, I haven't transformed into a woke Joe Rogan-esque comedy podcaster, though maybe I should because I hear that's where the money is. That is a reference to the Sex and the City revival that we are going to be dissecting in detail later on. Hello to my dear Benjamin Law. Which Sex and the City archetype do you claim? Are you a Carrie, a Miranda, a Charlotte... Samantha? Or do you reject these narrowly defined tropes of modern womanhood just like moi? This is the question of our times, right? It's almost like the pop culture equivalent of a horoscope. Which Sex and the City character are you? I feel like I'm on the cusp of Carrie and Miranda with a Samantha rising. But if we even mention the cinematic abomination that is Sex and the City 2, I think I'm just going to reject all of those things, actually. (laughs) I just want to focus firmly on the TV show. We are here in our final fresh episode of Stop Everything, and we are going to go out in style today Mm. with a conversation about the year that was, Chris Mance movies, and just like that, I'm super excited. So let's get going. Last week, we set some homework. We asked each other to prepare a list of some of our memorable things of 2021. We don't know what each of us has prepared. So let's get going. Let's surprise, tickle, and delight each other. Oh, okay. Beverly, we're getting intimate already. My criteria were which pop culture moments in 2021 had the biggest impact? And impact can be measured in certain ways. Maybe we can do one for one. I can start in March. So March was Oprah interviewing Meghan and Harry. And the immortal phrase, were you silent or were you silenced? That had a huge impact in terms of like audience numbers alone. It had a huge number in terms of like our audience numbers. I think that was our most listened to episode of Stop Everything Ever. People were hungry for discussion about Meghan and Harry, but it also had huge impact in terms of how people saw the royal family. And it was very interesting to see an American take on a very British story. Mine is just a silly one. Just bring the trash. Come on. (laughs) I think I mentioned it last week, but here is the audio as a wonderful refresher. I believe you have a filter turned on in the video settings. Uh, You might want to... uh, Take we're trying to, we're tr- can you hear me, Judge? I can hear you. I think it's a filter. It, in the- it is, and I don't know how to remove it. I've got my assistant here. She's trying to, but uh, I'm prepared to go forward with it. That's 
I'm here live. It's not, I'm not a cat. <laughs> Beverly, we mostly record this show nowadays in two separate cities. So a lot of people don't know that you're recording this right now with a cat filter on. <laughs> uh, I'm prepared to go forward, Your Honor. <laughs> That that clip really has to join the pantheon of internet viral videos that are just so pure and delightful, like the BBC guy who was an expert in North Korea with his kids coming in. There's just something so exquisitely and horrifically perfect and lovely about that. It's the persistence of dignity under circumstances of extreme humiliation. <laughs> ah. Ah, that sound, that's the sound my soul makes all the time when something goes wrong and you've got to keep going. It's a primal screen. <laughs> it's, a, it's a lovely primal screen. I'm talking about impact. And I thought the Tokyo Olympics, remember that time of the year where so much of this country was in lockdown and despair? We just didn't know when this lockdown was actually going to end. And one of the bombs was the Olympics, which so many people, including so many people in Australia, were cynical about. The Olympics opening ceremony was pretty somber. There was no one in this stadium. It was like the world had ended. But then you've got Naomi Osaka lighting the cauldron. And then the Olympics itself becomes this real moment of reckoning. American gymnast Simone Biles pulled out of the Olympics, not entirely. She came back for beam. But what she did there, I think, really changed the conversation about how we're supposed to see athletes, what we expect for them and what heroism looks like. I totally forgot about the Tokyo Olympics. <laughs> That's right. how this year you, has been. You loved the Tokyo I loved Olympics. Them. I want to. I want to remind <laughs> you. It's like this is who you were, Beverly. This was our 2021, everybody. Okay, so to your Tokyo Olympics, I present you the ever given of the Suez Canal. Do you remember the enormous container ship which blocked the Suez Canal for six days? It was the blockage that inspired so many memes, but it was a blockage with a lot of practical effects, like people couldn't get like goods because the of this. The global right? supply chain was massively disrupted, but you're right, Ben. This container ship in the Suez Canal launched countless memes into the universe, and it launched my favourite meme of 2021. The image, if you can picture it, if you saw it online, was like the ever-given blocking the Suez Canal. It's basically mired in sand. And then there's a tiny little digger right down at the base trying to dig it out. And so this contrast of this massive container ship and this tiny digger futilely trying and so many memes created. My favorite one, the label on the container ship is systemic racism <laughs> and the digger is labeled Your Workplace's Diversity and Inclusion Group. That's a deep cut, <laughs> and that's that really a real hit cut. Home. That really hit home. That spoke to me deeply. Okay, so that's the most painful three-point turn in history, <laughs> <laughs> a ship in the Suez Canal. You know, when I was looking back at this year, Beverly, January was when the riots at the Capitol happened. It's been a year for so many reasons. The one other pop culture moment that I wanted to mention was Squid Game, actually, mm. you know, it's just entered the kind of pop culture lexicon so easily. It's a shorthand for so many things. But as a show in and of itself, rushed to the top of Netflix's charts. It has now surpassed Bridgerton as the most watched show ever on Netflix. Think of the impact of one show. It sparks off a culture war and moral panic. Why are so many people watching this horribly violent show? It sparked off a very memorable and contentious Halloween party at Chrissy Teigen's place. 
Did you see? Did you see this, Beverly, Look, at all? I didn't, but I'm guilty of ordering a Squid Game tracksuit for Halloween, so I don't know if I should say anything. No, but that, I think that's fine. The reason why it was so contentious is when you think of what Squid Game is, which was a show about financial despair and economic disparity, you've got someone as rich as Chrissy Teigen dressing up as characters from the show. So people were wondering, did you actually miss the the point? She does have a big piggy bank full of cash already. Exactly, exactly. And the one other big impact that I thought was interesting, this Korean language TV hit resulted in Duolingo reporting a 40% increase of people learning Korean on the app. You know, one little bit of popular culture, I mean, not little, it's a beer moth, resulted in like a huge wave of people wanting to know more about a culture and a language. Like that's huge. For my final one, I want to ask you a question. Benjamin Law, do you know what a non-fungible token is? Can you explain? I thought that conversation about my medical history was private and not for airing, Beverly, about my non-fungible tokens. Not fungible? My goodness, Benjamin Law, telling dad jokes on the radio. We've really gotten to gone to a new level. I am at the age where young twinks call me daddy online, so it makes sense. If you're non-fungible, it means that you, you can't exchange it for something that's similar, right? So if, if you think about in the analog art world, an original Picasso is a non-fungible. So in the NFT world, it's a unique piece of digital ephemera, and its uniqueness is protected by blockchain technology so that you can't replicate it, and its authenticity is verified. It's securely tracked, right? That's the digital back end of it. But NFTs came into our parlance because things were happening like Jack Dorsey sold his first ever tweet as an NFT for $2.9 million. Grimes, who is the co-parent of XAsh A12 with Elon Musk, uh-huh. made $6 million selling NFTs of videos and music. And, you know, the auction house Christie's, they sold their first NFT artwork by an artist named Beeple. It started with an opening bid of $100, and it went to $69.3 million. Okay, can I sell my original Microsoft Paints from when I was like 12 years yeah, old Yeah, if you Yeah, if you turn them into an NFT, you can. You can do that. If you don't understand why something which is eminently replicatable in the digital space, is suddenly gathering a lot of value. Don't worry, Keanu Reeves is with you because he's gone viral in the days leading up to the promotion of The Matrix 4. And there's a video going around where he's kind of chuckling at the concept of NFTs. And so you're in good company. Mm, Okay. Well, I'm interested and confused, but that's no different than usual. (laughs) You are dilated with curiosity, Benjamin Law. We're hurtling towards the end of 2021 with speed that frankly frightens me. The countdown to Christmas is on. So, Beverly, is it now time to talk about Christmas movies? It is. And not just Christmas movies, but listen carefully, Chris-mance movies, which is a Christmas romance movie, a.k.a. a Christmas rom-com. 
Okay, so we're talking about things like Love Actually, that kind of realm ballpark of movie. I mean, not as creepy and psychotic as Love Actually, but it's yes. It's a deranged film. It's a terrifying film, and please, nobody write to us defending it. We're not taking any of those messages at this time. Now, for five years running, YA novelist and entertainment and lifestyle journalist Jenna Guillaume has been committing herself to the Chris Mance genre, rating and reviewing them online in epic threads on Twitter. So I asked Jenna to slide down the chimney and come and chat with me about Chris Mance movies. She's here to talk about some of her all-time top picks. Jenna Guillaume, welcome back to Stop Everything. Thanks for having me. It's really good to have you here. And Jenna, one of your specialties that you have developed in the, in your career covering entertainment and pop culture is that you have a whole sideline in something known as Christmas movies, which is a portmanteau of Christmas and romance. How big is this subgenre of Christmas films and how did you become so interested in this particular area? Yeah, it's huge. I would say it's way more popular than any other type of Christmas movie. For every kid's Christmas movie that comes out, there's probably about 20 to 30 of these Christmas romances that come out every year. Uh, This year alone, there's over 140 that have been released across various networks, I believe. And I first got into them basically in 2017. You know, I've always loved Christmas movies and I grew up loving like Love Actually and It's a Wonderful Life, which I suppose have elements of romance in them. But what we talk about when we talk about these ones are a very specific genre of TV movie, I suppose you would say. Hallmark really pioneered them and it can be quite low budget and cheesy and very tropey, often very cliched and repetitive. (laughs) So (laughs) it's a very specific subgenre. And I think the first awareness I had of them was actually when Netflix started getting in on the genre and they released A Christmas Prince. I was actually quite depressed at the time and not much was bringing me joy. And I watched A Christmas Prince and it just brought me so much joy and it was a revelation because I was like, well, this is actually making me feel good things. And I then became absolutely obsessed and discovered there was about a dozen more Christmas Prince type movies but like hundreds of other other Christmas romances and, and that's kind of my obsession began there. If you have access to a streaming service, if you go into the search bar and you just type in Christmas, the number of films that will show up in the search result and kind of, in a sense, the sameness of all of their tiles is really quite remarkable. And Jenna, you mentioned that they're quite tropey. And I really reckon that these films were forged in the crucible of like Lifetime and Hallmark movies. They really have that strong origin story. And when you name the number of movies coming out, it really seems like they must be pumping them out all year long. This is like a huge industry within the film industry itself. Absolutely. They're working on them all year long, especially Hallmark and Lifetime. They are the biggest producers of these, as you say. And then other networks and streaming services are getting are getting in on the genre as well. But it's really interesting because they've just exploded. I think since Netflix started creating them, I think it's been a boon for Hallmark and Lifetime as well because it's drawn more attention to their movies. 
Hallmark, for instance, has this thing called Countdown to Christmas, which is when their Christmas movie season starts. And formerly it would start, say, in December, then it moved to late November. This year it started in late October. So (laughs) that's the release of the movie. So I could see a time in the future where it was just an all-year-round thing where they're just constantly released. Right. And are there particular tropes or characteristics of Christmas movies that we should look out for? I mean, it's probably the same three to five stories over and over again. The most popular one would be the busy, stressed city girl who goes back to her hometown for Christmas against her will and meets up with a rugged small town guy who teaches her the meaning of Christmas and the true value of life and not putting all of her soul into work and family and love and all of that really cheesy stuff. (laughs) I'm nodding deeply as you describe that. I just thought of a few movies that immediately fit that mold. So Jenna, with that in mind, all that you've described, where should we set our expectations as viewers? In terms of quality? Yes. (laughs) Very low. (laughs) Yeah, I would say go into these movies with the expectation that you're not going to get a particularly good movie necessarily. You're going to get a specific experience. And I think the experience that what I turn to these movies for and what a lot of people turn to them for is just like a comforting, easy watch that is just low stakes. You don't have to think too much. There's no stress at all. It's just a good way to switch off your brain after a long and hard and tiring year. I think after two years of a pandemic, that's sounding pretty appealing. What about the casts? There seem to be particular people who have made careers or even second careers out of starring in Christmas movies. Definitely. There's a few actors that dominate the genre and there's a few that I like in particular and I will (laughs) watch whatever they're in because I tend to like them. Obviously, with so many movies coming out, the quality of performance can be a bit hit and miss. And so when you find an actor you like, you're like, okay, I'll I'll keep watching them. But people like Lacey Chabert, who was in Mean Girls and Party of Five back in the day, people like the former Full House cast members, a lot of them are in a lot of these movies. Former One Tree Hill cast members, so Bethany Joy Lenz and Hilary Burton are in quite a few. So basically, if they were big in the 90s and noughties, there's a really good chance that they're now making these Christmas movies. Wow, it's like the CW rebooted in 2021. Okay, Jenna, I think that's a wonderful introduction to Christmas movies. Let's start with some of your top picks. This is the trailer for Snowed in Christmas. Our plane was grounded and we don't have anywhere to stay. My husband and I own a small inn. And I assure you, we are the coziest place around. It's decorated like Santa's village in here. Being a good journalist is finding the extraordinary in the ordinary. There's nothing scarier than love, but it's the only thing worth risking everything for. All right, so that's 2017 Lifetime movie available on Foxtel. And it's just as you foretold, Jenna Guillaume, there is a woman whose name is Jenna, by the way, and she's a busy, big city journalist, and she is thrown into some kind of wacky scenario which leads to love. Yes, exactly. Maybe I over-identify with this movie as a journalist (laughs) named Jenna. (laughs) But yeah, so so this is about two journalists and they're competing for a role and they are travelling to this fancy resort over the holidays to write about it. But their plane gets stranded in this small town and they get snowed in 
at an inn, which is why it snowed in Christmas. These movies love a pun in the title. They don't like each other before this trip, but as they're stuck in close proximity to each other, they learn that maybe there's more to the other than meets the eye. And, of course, they fall in love. And the owner of the inn may or may not be Santa. (laughs) Oh, wow. There's a twist. (laughs) I didn't expect that. The power of Christmas is strong and great and in all of us. Does Snowed In Christmas display any other classic tropes? I think the false proximity and the enemies to lovers is the main ones in this, which are like obviously really popular in the romance genre. Okay, so that is Snowed In Christmas. Let's move on now to The Mistletoe Promise. The most miserable time of the year. I used to really love Christmas. Congrats, you're up for partner. Time to bring out that new girlfriend you were just telling me about. But you don't have a girlfriend, Nicholas. Christmas rarely goes well for me. You should start a club. What if we made an arrangement? We could attend events together. I could distract you from your ex-husband. I'll drop a contract. What about promise? Mistletoe promise. I like it. You don't know each other. Are you going to try and pass her off as your long-term girlfriend to bosses in charge of your fate? Happy Happy holidays! I love the way the trailers for all of these films, Jenna, by the way, They are very skilled at encapsulating the entire nut graph of the film in that 30-second trailer. Like, they have got that down to an art, haven't they? Oh, yeah. And that's the thing with these movies. You go in knowing exactly what you're getting. There's no surprises, except maybe (laughs) if one character is accidentally Santa. But one of the allures of this genre is their predictability. Right. And this one here, The Mistletoe Promise, has that classic trope, fake dating. We're going to see that a lot, aren't we? Yes, which is absolutely one of my favorites. Why do we love that fake relationship thing so much? It never works, but we see it. I mean, I'm just thinking we've seen it in Bridgerton. We've seen it in countless Christmas movies. It's just something that it's, let's face it, it doesn't work in reality, but we love to believe in it in, in this narrative form. So I also know that The Mistletoe Promise has a cast member who is like a recurring Chris Mance protagonist. Tell me about Luke McFarlane. Yeah, so Luke McFarlane is one of my absolute favourite Chris Mance actors. And the thing with these movies, because they are so repetitive and the material isn't always great, what elevates a Chris Mance from being an average movie to a good one is often the cast and the performances and the chemistry between the leads. And Luke McFarlane is one who is repeatedly very good, often has really great chemistry with his castmates. So I really love him. It's interesting because he's actually gay in real life and he's in all of these movies, which he does constantly, he's kind of aggressively heterosexual. But he was actually in Single All the Way, which is one of Netflix's Christmas movies this year. And it's about two gay leads, but he plays the second lead. He didn't actually get to have the main romance. So I'm really waiting for the day when he gets to have his own gay lead romance in one of these movies as well. We're going to talk about Single All the Way shortly, but let's keep moving down your top three. The third and final on your list is one originally called My Christmas Love. What an original title. Cynthia Baker has a secret admirer. Who's it from? But which one of these men is sending her holiday gifts? This is the most romantic thing ever. This is a Christmas mystery. Now she'll have 12 days to discover her one true love. So My Christmas Love is from 2016, made by the Hallmark Channel. You can watch it on Amazon Prime. Jenna, this movie is giving me strong, you've got male vibes with the unknown suitor. 
It is right. And Meredith Hagner, who is the the lead in it, reminds me a lot of Meg Ryan, actually. She's got like that really every woman kind of charm. And the, she plays a children's book author who starts getting these mystery gifts for Christmas. She's at her parents' house, of course. And she's brought her co-worker and best friend to town as well to work over the holidays. And then she starts getting these gifts, which distract her and Teach her the magic of Christmas. <laughs> so she's got to try and figure out who's sending the secret admirer presents. Okay, so a bit of a mystery element and a best friend, ride or die, along in that one. That's my Christmas love. I know that you love these films, Jenna, and absolutely they sound like something that is great family viewing, especially at Christmas time when you've probably had a big day and you want to unwind. But if you could kind of put your cultural critic cap on just for a second, and if we were to critique these films, You know, I can't help but notice that every single relationship so far is heterosexual. They are overwhelmingly white. I mean, just take a look at the tiles. They're pretty homogenous and they don't really incorporate any kind of social commentary or anything to do with what's happening in our world. They're pretty unrealistic. That's my critique, but What do you think? Do you think that these movies need to have that? Do they fall short because they ignore everything I've just mentioned? Or is that part of the appeal? Oh, I think you're spot on. And there's a lot to criticize in these movies. You know, I don't kind of watch them and love them unconditionally. I think there's a lot of problems with them. And as you point out, just how straight and overwhelmingly white they are is definitely a huge problem. I've been watching them for like four or five years now. And it's been interesting to see that very slowly changing. In the past two years in particular, there is emerging more diverse casts and more diverse stories in terms of being completely straight. Of course, unfortunately, there's still very few and far between to see that diversity. But I have hope that that's going to continue to improve in future as their popularity explodes, that demand that they actually be better in that sense is increasing as well. So I think the networks have to respond to that to continue to have this success. Well, you mentioned one earlier, which is Single All The Way, which has trended really high on Netflix in the run-up to Christmas. And it features a queer storyline. It's men loving men. And let's hear a little bit of the trailer. Christmas is a big deal for my family. And every year, I'm this problem they all have to solve. Because I'm always the single one. I think you should come home with me. We can pretend we fell in love after all these years. <laughs> It'll be so easy. My family already asked why we're not just together. All right. <gasps> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Slay Queen Carol? You have to call her Christmas Carol. How did I not know your mom had a holiday-specific drag name? You get a pair, and you get a pair, whoever. Oprah. Oprah. Oh, right. Yeah. Of course you guys do that. That's quite funny. It's got some very obvious references, I guess, to gay culture. I was partial to this because it has Jennifer Coolidge and Kathy Najimy, and it's set in New Hampshire. Fun fact, I lived in New Hampshire for four and a half years of my life. So I was very taken by Single All The Way. Jenna, what do you think about this movie? I think it's charming. It's definitely my favorite this year so far, and I think... It's very wholesome. It's got a great cast, as you mentioned, and it's just a lot of fun and it's refreshing to see some of those really tired old tropes played out in a different way, purely with the introduction of a homosexual relationship. Mm. So I was actually wondering about this. Like, is it, in a sense, kind of quietly revolutionary to normalise 
a gay couple at the center of this very stereotypical Christmas rom-com? Or is it kind of squashing queer stories into this heterosexual straitjacket that even though you're gay, you still are going to have entirely the same kind of dynamic and relationship as your typical straight couple? That's interesting. I think both perspectives are valid. And I think this genre is very traditional and very conservative. And so it is quietly revolutionary, I think, to have something that pushes back against that. But at the same time, it is very much like heteronormative still. It's still very focused on monogamy and settling down with a family in a small town and that kind of thing. I do think it's great to just have queer romance that is happy and the biggest obstacles are, you know, whether the Christmas pageant is going to be successful. (laughs) Yeah. So I think that's refreshing in its own way, but it's definitely not without the potential to critique that as well. Yeah, totally. And I think it's actually kind of a great Trojan horse because you have this really accessible Christmas movie and this is going to be streamed in lounge rooms all around the world on Christmas Day, probably. And it could lead to some really interesting conversations about relationships. So that's Single All The Way. That's Netflix's 2021 offering of one of its Christmases. Another one that you've brought to our attention is the Christmas setup. I'm headed back to Milwaukee. My mother is thrilled. Oh, you look so skinny! feel like a teenager again. Do you mind staying here because the Christmas tree is being delivered? Ah! Patrick Ryan? When I saw him, I almost died. I'm sure it was just all in your head. No, literally, I fell down the stairs. You okay? I'm fine. Let's go! If my mom just stays awake at night thinking of ways to publicly humiliate me, I think you look adorable. So the Christmas setup is from Lifetime, made in 2020. You can watch it in Australia on Foxtel and Binge. And two things here that are significant, right, Jenna? First of all, Fran Drescher. And secondly, this was Lifetime's first gay Christmas. That's pretty significant. Yeah, it's definitely significant. Well overdue. It only came out last year, as you mentioned, and it's a sign that they're heading into the right direction. It's probably it's still slow progress, but it is progress. And another one where a very 90s nostalgic <laughs> actress is the mother figure as well. These movies are super interesting, but yet I can't help but notice that they're all male-male romances. Are there any lesbian Christmases? Are there any bisexual Christmases out there that you're aware of? So I would say definitely as the queer romance in this subgenre grows, unfortunately it does seem to be heavily skewed towards male-male romances. There has been a few lesbian ones. I would say last year there was two that I'm aware of, which was Happiest Season, which is actually a mainstream movie. So it's not quite a Christmas. It's not one of these hallmark ones, but it is a Christmas romance with a lesbian couple at the center. And the other one was a New York Christmas wedding, which was a very, very strange movie. And I would say not very good, unfortunately. But there's two that are being released this year. There's one that's already been released and one upcoming. So I'm hoping that there'll be better offerings and definitely hoping to see more of that in the genre as well. Jenna Kiyom, it's been absolutely a blast to run through these Chris Mance movies with you. Thank you so much for taking the time and talking to us. My pleasure. 
Jenna Guillaume is an entertainment and lifestyle reporter. We'll put a link to Jenna's Chris Mance threads in the Stop Everything show notes. She's been doing it for five years running, people. And you can also check out Jenna's books. She's the author of three YA novels. They're called What I Like About Me, You Were Made For Me, and The Deep End. And you can buy those at booksellers everywhere. Let's talk about the Sex and the City revival, Beverly. Are you ready for this deep dive into Cosmos, Manolo Blahniks, and a lot of clothes? Listen, am I ready or is it necessary? It's necessary. (laughs) It's necessary. (laughs) Hey, now, before we go further, here is your big spoiler alert, everyone. We have been provided with the first four episodes of the series and just like that. So we're currently one episode ahead of what's available on Binge and Foxtel. And we'll try not to give too much away, but there are some things like big pause, big spoiler alert here, turn off if you don't want to hear what happens in episode one, the end of the first episode, which has been covered widely in the media, which involves a death. So we're not going to really consider that a spoiler, I don't think. No, let's just say it. Big dies. We've been talking about it for the whole week. Rest in peace, buddy. Okay, before we really go into what happens in this revival, I feel like there's a few God-tier level givens about Sex and the City that we should establish, right? And I think number one is that if you are a consumer of pop culture, no one is a neutral on Sex and the City. (laughs) Right? No one's just like, eh, sex in the city. I could take it or leave it. It's always like vociferously, I'm a fan, or vociferously, I'm very not a fan. And luckily, we fall into these two camps, right? Is that true? So wait a minute. Before I disclose my sex in the city status, what are you, Beverly? I mean, besides the Charlotte Miranda Carrie question, what are you? I am not a fan of sex in the city. Oh, really? Yeah, like I've spoken publicly about this on stages. Why do you hate women, Beverly? My issue with Sex and the City is that it made my life as a young woman very difficult. I happen to have the fortune, the misfortune, whatever you want to call it, of moving to New York City right at the peak of Sex and the City, right? I was a graduate student and I was going to university there. And can I tell you, Sex and the City literally made it very difficult to make friendships there because it was right at what that time. What do you mean? What do you mean? You weren't living the fantasy woman, like you were in the right place at the right time. Exactly right, Benjamin. Everybody was fantasizing as if they are one of these four women. It was very hard to form friendships with people who just wanted to go out and drink Cosmos, carry tiny bags, and talk about Sex in the City. It was a walking death, Benjamin, for someone like me. Because can we be honest? Like, it's a story about four white women. In what uh-huh. universe, four rich white women in New York City, in what universe is my life as a poor graduate student who's crying because I can't afford beer that costs $8 reflected in this life? It was a cruel time to live in New York City and have to deal with the behemoth of Sex and the City. I also think the other God-tier level thing we have to talk about in Sex and the City is that it is such a sport to hate on Sex and the City. So Uh that's another thing that we have to recognize is like the easiest thing in the world is to critique Sex and the City, but critique it we must. Critique it we must, and you bring up some very good and fair points. I mean, the show itself as an artifact hasn't necessarily 
aged well, right? It is for privileged white women swanning around in the world and the biggest problems really do seem to revolve around sex and relationships. And if those are your biggest problems, you're a lucky person. We have jokes that really haven't aged well. There's a lot of biphobia in there. I think Carrie talks about bisexuality at one point as a gateway to gaydom, which is not a great thing to perpetuate. You've got Samantha having ostensibly a queer storyline, but then it's wrapped up and argued as a phase and it's presented as such. I think if I watched those earlier seasons, I'd probably cringe, but not cringe as much as over the Sex and the City 2 film, which I still can't watch because I'm actually convinced that it's a horror movie. That <laughs> all said, Beverly, that all said, you know, I, I will look back on when I was watching it as a millennial gay man. Like my subset of people, my people of that generation, like this show was an escapist fantasy of a lives that we didn't around in terms of how graphic and frank and blunt you could talk about raw sexuality and desire with a primetime mainstream audience packaged in a way that made it seem palatable and fun. And I think that was new. That's something that we can take for granted now. And that's probably its best legacy. Its worst legacy is just having an orgy of capitalism and consumerism that cannot be stopped. Like that is a terrifying aspect of the show for me. But I am very interested and I was very interested in hearing that this was going to be rebooted without Samantha and it was going to deal with women in their mid-50s hurtling on with their lives. What does that look like? I'm curious. Here's what it looks like to me, Benjamin Law. I know you love having two conflicting simultaneous truths, right? Uh-huh, this, uh-huh. Is, this is your jam. I, mean, I don't love it. You I just embrace think that's a way it. to approach life. Yeah. You embrace it. So the two simultaneous truths that are conflicting for me is, and just like that, mm-hmm. is both better than expected, but also as irritating as expected. Okay. We, we'll need to break this down. Before we go into the specifics of how it's better than expected and still deeply irritating, because I think I agree with your assessment as well, let's just get some foundations here, right? So, first of all, Sex and the City, four women, Kim Cattrall, played Samantha Jones, Carrie Bradshaw's publicist. So Samantha Jones, full of double entendres, like a British TV sitcom character, but she's not back for this show, even though she's a fan favourite. Everyone wondered, how are they going to deal with this absence? Well, Do you think they handle this well? It's particularly interesting because Kim Cattrall has been openly scathing of Sarah Jessica Parker. Oh, we've seen the Instagram posts. The friendship is dead, buried, and cremated, right? Here they talk about it in the first episode, and this is what it sounds like. I cannot believe it. Oh, it's been forever. Do we hug or bump elbows, sign language, smoke signals? Where are we these days? And and where's the fourth musketeer? Where's Samantha? Oh, um, she's no longer with us. No, 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 she didn't die. Oh, no. Oh, no, no, I'm so sorry, no. I just meant she's not with us. She's in London. She's not actually in London. Go check her Instagram. She's like joyfully eating cacio pepe in Rome. Out of a wheel of cheese. She's loving life. God bless you, Kim Cattrall. Kim Cattrall as Samantha was my favorite character because of all the things that you said, Ben. She was like so audaciously openly and sexual. And I remember watching some sex scenes in Sex and City that were just like, I'd never seen anything like that on television. So it was like a rocket of what television could be. 
But what's really interesting is this parallel where Samantha's character continues to haunt at least the first two episodes of this series and knowing exactly how poorly Kim Cattrall in real life feels about her name being invoked on this series, it had just was a weird flavor for me. It mm. left a bad taste in my mouth. They had to talk about Samantha to a certain extent, but the level to which they used Samantha's character as a plot device and kept mentioning her and raising her all the way through, it seemed actually in poor taste to me. Oh, that's so interesting. I had kind of a different reaction, and maybe it's because... I'm a screenwriter, but <laughs> how are they going to deal with this very conspicuous absence? The show is not Sex and the City anymore, and I think it's very wise that they change the name of the series to something else. It's not Sex and the City. It's not There's pretty much with... no sex in, in the city. Yeah, basically. like Sex is still there, but it's kind of receded as a priority or a focal point for these women. I mean, there's one kind They're of not like... not having sex at all. There's one strange, interesting sex scene in episode one, but it's not the primary thrust of the show, if you will. <laughs> and when you talk about all of those real life situations and the parameters that the show needs to deal with, Kim Cattrall's not here, they've had a huge falling out. I thought it was one meta, Carrie and Samantha had had a falling out. And I thought that was neat for this show because this show on one hand is kind of a show about aging and loss and grief. And one of the real things about getting older is, one, you lose people, people die, as is the whole kind of arc of this series. You know, when Carrie loses big, we issued a spoiler alert, so don't get angry at us. But also losing Samantha is a loss and a grief that all of us experience. You know, we have friendships a loss that's not often depicted on screen very often. You know, breakups about romance, breakups of families, they are very much focused on, but we don't really have a language or a lexicon to really discuss our feelings about what it's like to lose a friend. So I actually think it was good of them to lean into it. What I do have a problem with is how much exposition it took for them to... Being screenwriter, but I find the mm. writing on this show to be... All right. So let us now approach the big moment out, again, dissected online. We feel comfortable in it not being a spoiler. Here's the moment. Oh, God, John. Oh, John, oh, honey. John. Honey. Oh. Honey. Oh, my God. encounters a black person in power with braids, you know? Because what? in their world of New York City, they still have not met any black people. In This is not a spoiler, because I think it's just an atmospheric thing. But in Carrie's grief over Big, in the later episodes three and four, she starts wandering around New York City. And she's walking around this massive city. She's walking all day and all night. You know where she walks from? She walks from like the Upper West Side to the Upper East Side. She basically walks across Central Park and she's like, I'm walking all over Manhattan. And to me, that's like such a detail that shows exactly still how narrow their existences are. If you're mm -hmm. going to walk to Manhattan, can I see you walking to Chinatown, please? Look, we obviously have a lot of thoughts about And Just Like That Woke Moment. <laughs> and we'd love to hear yours, but for the time being, this is our final new episode of Stop Everything for 2021. You're going to get some summer highlights coming up soon, but we're going to 
take a break. We we made it to the end, Beverly. Just we we're made both it. human husks, but you know, holding we're hands, here. tripping along to the end. We made it with joy, with grace. It's been a delight, as always, again, Ben, to have you as my co-hosting partner, my ride or die until the end. But we're really not going anywhere because while we were making these new episodes, we also, in the background, made a whole summer series for you. So we're not it's a actually game within a game. <laughs> we're not actually going anywhere. We won the Squid Game. Game of Radio National. And these are a series of highlights for the next few weeks on RN Summer, featuring some of our favorite, our most memorable conversations of 2021. If that's not enough for you, we have years worth of back episodes of Stop Everything on the website and in the Stop Everything podcast feed to keep you company over the holidays. Find that in your podcast app or in your ABC Listen app. It's great for road trips. Big thank you in 2021 to our producer, Sarah Mashman. Looking forward to 2022. And also a massive thank you to our sound engineers, Ariel Gross, Carrie Dell, the entire sound engineering team at Radio National. Uh, thank you all for listening. It's whether it's been on radio or podcast and writing to us via artsonrn at abc.net.au or talking to us via Twitter and Instagram. Stop Everything is produced on lands of the Eora and Kulin Nations and the lands of the Muwinina people from country around Nipaluna. Happy holidays and enjoy the summer break, folks. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.